immediate and pressing announcement is that we're going to have our annual Christmas and Thanksgiving luncheon this coming Sunday. A number of people have signed up, and a number of people have not signed up. I think we still need some side dishes, and from the list that I saw a little while ago, it looked like we are not up to our normal standard in desserts. Is that right? I saw like about four. That just won't do it. But we don't want to overload on desserts. The last couple of times we've done this, we haven't had enough sides. So I think one of the things we said was bring a dessert and bring a side, uh, enough for your family and one other, and then we ought to uh, do fine. So that will be following the morning uh, service on Sunday morning. The other thing is on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve Day, Sunday, we will have a special Christmas communion service on that particular Sunday morning. And then the other thing is we had our pre-trib conference this last week, and so after we pray, uh, a lot of times I like to give sort of a summary of what we did and what the conference was all about. Uh, the videos and audio and papers will be available uh, before long, but um, <clears throat> due to schedule conflicts, because I was interviewed for a TV show on Monday morning, and then I always hate going to these things when I give my paper, because up until the time you do your presentation, all you worry about is your paper and your presentation, and I was the very last speaker, so I missed about half the speakers getting ready for the uh, for my own uh, presentation, which was the last one, so I missed those. So Pastor Dan Ingram is with us tonight. He came back with me yesterday, as he usually does, and he's going to, after we pray, he's going to come up and talk about what happened in the sessions that I missed, and then I'll talk about the sessions where, uh, when I was there, and then we'll begin our study. So that'll just take about 10 or 15 minutes to cover what went on in the conference, and then we'll go on with our with our study. So we need to prepare for our study this evening, so let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with our with the Lord, enjoying our relationship with Him. And if necessary, we need to confess sin, that we can do so in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to be here tonight, to have the freedom in this nation to worship you, to teach your word freely without interference. Father, there are so many things going on today around us. We just continue to pray for our leaders, for our president. We pray that you would uh, with <clears throat> restrain the forces of evil that seek to prevent him from accomplishing uh, his agenda and turning us back to being a nation of laws and dependent upon the Constitution. Father, we pray for peace in Jerusalem, having recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Of course, there's the consequent Arab uprising. And Father, we pray that that won't last long. There will be a minimal, if no, loss of life. And Father, we pray that this will uh, <clears throat> be a move that will bring things a little further along towards some stability in Israel. Father, we pray for tonight as we study your word, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand what we are studying, see how it relates to our understanding of history and our understanding of our role in history as believers in the church age. Father, we also pray for Tommy Ice and his wife Janice as they need to uh, sell their house and move to Kansas City where he'll be uh, beginning a new position at Calvary University. We pray for that move. And, Father, we pray now for us that we can focus our attention upon the teaching of your word uh, tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Dan, you're up. Okay, this one is on. All right. Well, the first thing I think needs to be mentioned is I understand it's going to snow in Houston tonight. So, Merry Christmas, y'all. I'm really a little bit surprised that uh, Robbie asked me to uh, speak a little bit about these presentations because he knows 
maybe he wants me to comment on how much sleep I got during each one of them. He's always kidding me about the fact that I'll nod off now and then. But I'm really just concentrating with my eyes closed. Um, first of all, the first presentation was given by Dr. David Hawking. And uh, for those of you who may or may not know David Hawking, he is uh, an excellent speaker. His presentations are always uh, entertaining, if nothing else. He's very enthusiastic about what he has to present. And his title was Israel's Disobedience and the Sovereignty of God. I would have said that that's a, a misnamed because he was really focusing on the sovereignty of God and his and God's therefore commitment to them. And I think he, he did, of course, uh, comment about the disobedience of Israel. But for the most part, I, I wrote down that I thought a better uh, title would have been God commit God's commitment to Israel or God and Israel and his everlasting covenants, because that's precisely where he focused. Um, he uh, also concentrated on the land, the land of Israel. It is the land of Israel. And he must have had us focus or say that about three or four times. And then he also uh, went through many, many, many verses of Scripture, which is always enjoyable. And therefore, his presentation is valuable from the, from, valuable from the standpoint that he uh, it was uh, very much biblically oriented. Uh, the next presentation in the morning still was Charles Clough. And his title was How Corrupted Science Produces False Eschatology. I look at the so-called climate crisis. And uh, another title that he was using, he began with how sin, sin, depravity, and corrupted science destroys the, uh, the, the foundation of science. And some of the notes that I took regarding uh, his presentation was that uh, the Bible is the foundation for all real science. And while he didn't say this, what that tells us is that the real definition of science fiction is any science that excludes God. And uh, that was his uh, sort of his emphasis here. He also uh, made the comment that uh, the Protestant Refora Reformation with a return to the biblical sources gave life to the scientific method. And uh, I think that his presentation is valuable simply from the standpoint that he provided material meat to that statement. But then he, he did go on and uh, present his position on climate change. And one of the, his comments was that any scientist doesn't argue from the standpoint that there is not climate change because climate is changing. And we've seen that uh, maybe not so much in modern history, although you can see it in modern history. But if we go back through the last two millennia, we're able to see the change that has occurred in climate. And it hasn't been because of fossil fuels. Um, and therefore, uh, anthropogenic climate change is simply uh, a grave misnomer. And to the extent that we pursue that, we really are condemning uh, third world countries to stay in third, in third world status. Um, Philip Goodman gave a presentation on the prominence of the eastern leg in Bible prophecy. And I have to tell you, as soon as I heard that title, I thought, I've never heard of an eastern leg in biblical prophecy. And of course, what he was trying to do is demonstrate that the statue of Daniel has two legs. Now, we've talked about the, the toes, the ten toes, but I never heard a presentation on the two legs. And he was trying to emphasize the importance of 
the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And then from there, he focused on the area of Syria uh, and Antiochus Epiphanes and his rulership in the Syrian area. And he would uh, he called this the, the Greco-Syrian connection. And then from that, he tried to um, uh, make a develop a position for the Assyrian Antichrist. Uh, frankly, I don't think he really made that position or he developed it or supported it very well, but um, that was his, his presentation. J.B. Hickson uh, gave a presentation called One Minute Before the Rapture. Some of you will remember he gave a presentation here for the Chafer Conference One Minute After the rapture. And so he's given the front door and the back door to the rapture. And I think you'll enjoy that. The second part of his presentation really was a very solid uh, gospel presentation. Uh, let's see. Then Robbie also wanted me to comment on uh, Dr. Mike Vlach, who gave a, a presentation on an overview of the biblical teaching on the kingdom of God. This was during the afternoon, Tuesday afternoon. And what he simply did is he began in, the, uh, in, in uh, Genesis. He began with creation using the word dominion and how uh, man was given dominion over creation. And while the, the term kingdom isn't there, he believes that it has its roots there. And then he tracks the uh, kingdom through the Old Testament and into the New Testament until he comes to the millennium. And he did a very fine job. Uh, also, that evening, Tuesday evening, Dr. Randall Price gave a presentation. And I do not know if it was filmed or not, but it was a presentation on his archaeological work this last summer in Qumran. Uh, they they uncovered another cave. It was a cave that he had, one of the caves that, had, that he had charted. And there were several caves that even though they had been uh, previously identified, they had not been explored. And one of the reasons is because of over the, uh, the last 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, there's been a lot of earthquake activity in that area that seals those caves. And therefore, to even find the cave, if it's been sealed by rock, is difficult. And then once you find it, if it's on a, a cliff, some of them almost a sheer cliff, uh, it's, it's difficult to get into them. Well, he did. And the cave that they explored was number 53, They've identified another one, number 52, and they'd like to go back to explore it. But they were able to find many artifacts in that cave, in Cave 53. And he described some of the things that they found, some of the pottery, um, being able to see the way that uh, the pottery jars were stored, um, were placed, rather, so that manuscripts could be stored in them. And it was a very uh, interesting presentation, and I believe that it has received uh, great uh, uh, the uh, the nation of Israel and also uh, other nations that are in, that are very interested in the Qumran, the findings in and around Qumran have identified this as possibly one of the more significant findings since uh, 1948, 1946, I guess, 46 through 47, with the other Qumran findings. So it was a, a wonderful presentation by Randy. So thanks, Robbie. Good. Thanks, Francis. Okay, great. That was uh, good. And one comment I wanted to make, for those who, m most of you know Charlie Clough, so he didn't need an introduction, but for those who may be listening, those unfamiliar with Charlie talking about uh, uh, climate change in his paper on corrupted science. Uh, Charlie has his 
uh, undergraduate degree in mathematics from MIT, and he's got his master's in uh, climate, uh, climate science from uh, Texas Tech University, and he retired as the chief meteorologist at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, so he has spent the vast majority of his career uh, as, a, as a climate scientist. So he's not a theologian talking about something that he doesn't know much about, but he is a scientist who is also a trained theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary. So that is very much worth it. You can go to his website, which is, what is it, Bible Framework? Bible Framework. We have a link on the Dean Bible Ministries website. And he has a number of papers and other uh, audio and maybe video up there dealing with uh, climate science and this whole climate change uh, hoax. Uh, the climate change happens. The hoax is that it's not caused by uh, by man. Now, on the second day, which I got a chance to go to, first of all, we had devotions led by Paul Wilkinson, who has uh, spoken many times. He comes over here from uh, England. Dan, where's he from in England? Remember, while you're thinking about it, if it comes to you, shout it out. Uh, he comes over from England, but he has he wrote his dissertation on uh, John Nelson Darby. He's been a fixture at pre-trib, and he has now become the pastor of his church there in, um, uh, in England because the pastor there died of a heart attack about a year ago. He had been, come to pre-trib the year before, and so he's become the pastor. He's done really breakthrough studies and gone to these uh, Christ at the Checkpoint conferences that are by the uh, Christian Palestinianists. Christian Palestinianists, that's the opposite of a Christian Zionist. These are the pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian, mostly liberal, uh, anti-Zionist so-called Christians, not operating on a biblical base. So he did a great job, had a devotion on the word chesed, God's faithful, loyal love, which was uh, quite good. And then Brandon House spoke. Some of you may not be familiar with Brandon House. That will change soon. Uh, Brandon House has had a ministry and website called Worldview Weekend, hosts these conferences around the country, bringing in expert speakers, talking about Christian worldview and how that works itself out into the realms, uh, into every realm of human intellection. You can go to his website, which is worldviewweekend.com or .org. You can just Google it and it'll come up. And he has a lot of different things on there. And he also has various Bible teachers now that are teaching. He's had Charlie teach on some things related to uh, climate science. Uh, Now uh, Tommy Ice has a regular weekly program on there. Andy Woods has a regular weekly program on there. And he and I have been talking. He's been trying to get me to do a regular weekly program on there for the last two or three years. And now that we connected, that was why I didn't go to any of the sessions Monday morning is because he was uh, had me scheduled for an hour-long interview, and it was right between uh, overlapping two sessions. So that pretty much knocked me out of Monday morning. So uh, he talked on the coming religious Reich. He has a book out, I believe, by that title. It was uh, very, uh, extremely illuminating. And he has uh, made it known to me that uh, when I go to Kiev, if we can figure out a way to to bring him in via Skype or go to meeting or some uh, video program, FaceTime, something like that, where he can sit at home and uh, and teach, he will speak on Thursday night Bible class during the time I'm in Kiev. And so that will be uh, quite good and probably uh, open your eyes to a lot that's going on in the world around us that you may not be aware of. So that was Brandon House, Dr. House, H-O-U-S-E. Wayne House spoke on the clash between literal interpretation and allegorical interpretation and basically traced that shift and its impact from the 4th century through the Reformation. And it's that shift away from literal interpretation in the 200s, starting with Origen to the 300s, when you have the rise of uh, allegorical interpretation and replacement theology. So that was helpful to understand that the battle today is always on interpretation. What does somebody mean? You remember some years ago I did a series on... uh, 
political discernment, uh, decision-making in the voting booth, and I had a quote from Justice Clarence Thomas where he made the comment to a uh, conference in New York that if you weren't interpreting the Constitution literally, you were just making it up. And that's the exact truth. That ought to be burnished on the Supreme Court building. And that is true for every biblical interpreter. If you are not interpreting literally, you're just making it up. And numerous pulpits in this country are just making it up. And so, Wayne, that is an important topic to understand hermeneutics. Then we had uh, Dr. Uh, Bill Watson teaches at Colorado University on the rapture, antichrist, and rebirth of Israel in medieval manuscripts. Now, this is a guy, he's humorous. He has a great personality because his subject is dry as dust. And he loves to go over for years, decades. He's been spending his summers going over and just reading medieval manuscripts. And if it's in German, he's taught himself how to read German as he translates the document so that he can read it. He's had to learn to read medieval script, all of these things. But he just loves to go over there, and he has read just about every published sermon from the Puritans in the 1600s and 1700s, and in the process has discovered that Darby didn't invent dispensationalism or the pre-trib rapture, that these guys had an early view that was dispensational and pre-trib. It wasn't systematized, but they understood that the church was not going to go through the tribulation. And so he came out with a book that Wayne House's publishing house published last year, called Dispensationalism Before Darby. Now he's been going through all these medieval manuscripts and he wants to write a book called Dispensationalism Before Luther because there were a lot of people apparently he's discovering in the Middle Ages who either had a mid-trib view of the rapture or they had a pre-trib view of the rapture. And then uh, Dan talked about Mike Vlock's paper, Current Events. I was busy putting the final touches on my presentation for the next morning. Jeremy Thomas, pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church, and I both talked on the on the Olivet Discourse. Jeremy covered the first part from Matthew 24, 4 to 31. I covered the second part from Matthew 24, 32 to Matthew 25, 46. That's a huge chunk. It was obviously more than I could do. It was more, I bit off a lot more than I could actually uh, really cover in an hour and a half session. And we both agreed. In fact, Jeremy and I were teaching through the Olivet Discourse at basically the same time, and we were on the phone talking about things a lot and really fed off of each other and uh, coming up with our views. We both received emails from two or three people who have changed their views on, if not, I don't think most of these guys had a, saw a rapture in the uh, Olivet Discourse, but they did have some other issues because as I taught you, there were six different views by dispensational futurists in the first 31 verses, and that's what Jeremy dealt with, showing that that the only view is that puts all that within the framework of Daniel's 70th week, and then the topic of Matthew 24 to 25 is the second coming, and there's no basis, this was my paper, no basis for saying that that when it says no one knows the day or the hour, that's not referring to the rapture, although you can see certain similarities. That's referring to the same subject of the chapter, which is the, which is the day of the Lord. And so that was what, um, what I covered, and that, that was basically what was going on. Now, there are a couple of changes that are going on with pre-trib because Tim LaHaye died uh, last year, and Tim LaHaye Ministries has really overseen and manage the pre-trib conference. For those of you who may not know what that is, it is a conference focused on scholars and pastors exploring and developing their understanding of dispensationalism, the pre-tribulation rapture, and issues related to that. This year was the 26th meeting. And so now uh, pre-trib has become its autonomous 501c3 organization, and Tommy is is running it completely. Tim LaHaye Ministries is basically phasing out and shutting down, and so 
pre-trib will stand on its own, so they're going to need some contributions and and some assistance. Tommy has never taken any money from pre-trib. It's never done anything to, other than cover just some uh, few immediate necessary expenses, but um, and that's why he uh, does other things and why he speaks around the country, and now he's going to be moving to Kansas City. He's been offered a full-time professorship there uh, to teach eschatology and theology at Calvary University. Chris Cohn, who used to be the president of, Trin- of uh, Tyndale, is now the pr- president the last couple of years at Calvary University. So we can be in prayer uh, for Tommy and that that new ministry. You can pray for secondary education and graduate education among evangelical schools in America. I heard uh, disturbing reports about Moody Bible Institute has ha- recently laid off 40 professors for this coming year. Other schools are having to lay off uh, professors. Friends of Israel is shutting down their Institute for Israel Studies because of a lack of interest. The younger generations coming along is not apparently not interested in the kind of formal, intensive training you need to be a pastor and a scholar of the Word of God. And so as a result, there's less and less interest in formal education. So we need to be in prayer for these things. And along with that, there's this huge shift that's taking place with the Internet and technology and how that's affecting um, education. If you don't have an Internet presence and basically a distance learning curriculum like we're develop- we have developed at Chafer Seminary, you just won't have a future. A sticks and bricks seminary, what we, what I was used to, what we grew up with, what has been the standard for uh, almost 2,000 years is going uh, to disappear. And so things are changing. So we need to be in prayer uh, for these transitions. There's a lot that's changing in our world and uh, a lot of negative news about what's happening uh, in churches, what's happening in universities, seminaries. Professors are not interested in eschatology anymore. They're not interested in these things, and so their students are. And so the number of younger men that are really uh, passionate and interested and curious about eschatology is diminishing. We often commented that when pre-trib started 26 years ago, most of us were the young men. We were, I was, when that started, I was just, not even 40 yet and now I'm a little bit older than that and we don't have that many uh, 40 year olds and 35 year olds Dan's going to volunteer to be the 40 year old yeah okay and uh, so that's changing but we need to look to the future and the number at least 30 of the old what I'd call the old guard from people like John Walver, Dwight Pentecost, Dan Toussaint, Dave Hunt, uh, Tim LaHaye, many others have gone to be with the Lord in the last 26 years. So it's a real truly a changing of the guard. So we need to be in prayer for that. Okay, let's uh, get on with our study. <coughs> we are in First Peter chapter 3 verse 19 where we're talking about Jesus going to, after the crucifixion, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, making proclamation to the spirits who are in prison. Who are those spirits in prison? Now, to understand the answer to that, what we have to do is take a, uh, take a parenthesis in our study and look at the origin of Satan and the demons, understanding who these spirits are. So in the last two or three lessons, I've talked, excuse me, I talked about who the angels are. And last time I talked about the fall of Satan in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. So we're going to continue to look at this study of what the Bible teaches about the angelic rebellion. Today, I want to focus on what's going on in Isaiah chapter 14. So open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 14. If you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, you will likely see that the heading over these verses, verses 12 through 14, have to do with the fall of Satan or the fall of Lucifer. If you have a Schofield Reference Bible, if you have a 
um, uh, New King, I mean, a, a Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. If you have a Ryrie Study Bible, then your notes in those study Bibles will tell you that this is describing the fall of Satan, the fall of Lucifer. Lucifer, as we'll see in our study, is not an accurate translation from the Hebrew. It comes out of the Vulgate translation for the Hebrew that is there. The Hebrew is Halel bin Shahar, which has to do with the bright and uh, shining star. And that was a title or a uh, nickname for this creature who's the highest of all of the angels. But there's a lot of debate. In fact, I was reading today in the Moody Bible commentary and noticed that whoever wrote that commentary there does not believe that this relates to Satan. They believe it relates to, they don't know who, but it relates to some historic king of Babylon. And you find this in other other works. You'll find it in the um, Thomas Nelson uh, Study Bible, the New King James Version Study Bible edited by Earl Rodmacher and by uh, Wayne House, Did the was the general editor for the New Testament. I forget who the general editor for the uh, Old Testament was right now. But you will find this again and again. So I have to warn you as your pastor who's to protect you from false teaching and from uh, scholarship that follows modern trends that this is a problem. It is a problem because they have failed to understand the doctrine of the, the uh, angelic rebellion, the doctrine of spiritual warfare, the doctrine of uh, the angelic conflict, whatever you want to call it. They have failed to understand that. And so they usually will say, I mean, the more dominant view is this is not Satan. Ezekiel 28, they'll, many will still say is. Others say it isn't. The problem is if you do not have the Bible revealing to us the origin of evil and the origin of sin, then we don't know where it came from. And so that would provide a possible narrative where sin and evil are eternal. God would not leave us in such a state of ignorance. And it also uh, takes us to some problems in basic uh, interpretation and basic hermeneutics. So let's just spend a little time talking about this passage and this context it is a passage that relates to someone who has fallen from heaven. And this is a dirge that is taken up against this individual. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, and then there are five I wills stated. This summarizes Satan's sin. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Yet Verse 15 shifts and says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. All right. Let's uh, look at this a little bit and come to an understanding here of what's going on. There are some scholars who suggest that this is a literal king of historic Babylon. That is Babylon in the past. Nebuchadnezzar is the most popular candidate based on Nebuchadnezzar, I mean uh, Daniel chapter 4. The second candidate that is offered is that this is a description of the future Antichrist. I think there is some truth to that. I'll explain that as we get into it. But it goes beyond a literal human king. Others, if they don't identify it as Nebuchadnezzar, they say that it, it, it's some uh, unspecified king or some idealized king. They can't really nail it down. They just assume it's historic. 
Uh, a third sees this as a reference to a future king that is empowered and indwelt by Satan, and so they become identified as the same. And that is a close view to what I have come to understand here. We'll see this in the context. We have to understand that Isaiah chapter 14 is in a context that includes Isaiah chapter 13. So I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Unfortunately, we have these chapter divisions here which break up the context. And if we're going to properly interpret Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, then we have to understand the whole context. And so let's just review a couple of things here. Before I do that, I want to point out a couple of things, other things here on Isaiah 14, 12. Notice it says that this person who is being um, being talked about here has fallen from heaven. That is in contrast to his desire that is expressed in verse 13, ascend to heaven. If fallen from heaven is just some hyperbole that doesn't refer to actually being uh, ejected from from heaven, then it minimizes the significance of his statement in verse 13 that he wanted to ascend into heaven. These are statements that are opposites to one another. And if one just means that he just, you know, fell from a position of power, a generic power or political power, then ascending into heaven has to be understood to be the same thing. And so you've minimized the significance of what's going on here. And that just doesn't do justice to what's going on uh, in the passage at all. So let's look at chapter 13 now. It's identified and introduced because as you go through this part of, of Isaiah, there are different judgments that are stated about different nations and different countries who are or have been uh, hostile to Israel. So this is a burden, which means it is a statement of judgment against Babylon. Now, this is literal Babylon. Babylon is located in the area of what is now modern Iraq, and it's located about 60 miles or so to the south and east of Baghdad. And it was an the capital of an ancient empire that covered most of the uh, most of the ancient Middle East. So this is a judgment which uh, Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw. And this is what it states. Lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exultation. I'm not going to go through every detail, but that's basically a statement about uh, those who are on the side of the Lord being called into um, called into order. And I believe that the holy ones there, that's I've commanded my not sanctified ones, it should be holy ones. I think that's probably referring to the angelic dimension behind this and that this is referring to the holy angels. And then we go on and read that, that this is around a battle. There's a huge battle that is taking place and around Babylon, and that in verse 4 says, The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country from the end of heaven. That, again, is a clue that I think it is talking about the angelic armies being mobilized behind the scenes because we know that the angels are doing things behind the scenes uh, that, that have an impact on what happens in our earthly dimension. We see that in Daniel chapter 10, talking about the prince of Persia, which is just a way of referring to this demon who's influencing the king of Persia. So they come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, the land here is not referring to Israel. It's referring to Babylon. And it, the, verse 6 then shifts and says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, the day of the Lord is a term that is used throughout Scripture to refer to uh, God's 
interference in human history with judgment. And sometimes it refers to something that is in the future. Sometimes it refers to a historic judgment. I believe this is one that speaks of the future judgment of God that takes place near the end of the tribulation period, near the end just prior to and setting the immediate stage for the return of the Son of Man. So this is at the end, right at the end of the tribulation. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. This would include the, these stages, uh, the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon. The day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. And then behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. This is talking about the destruction of, of Babylon at this time. And then it's described in verse 10, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And so these verses are very important. They are described in, for example, Joel 2.31 and in Joel 3.15 as that which happens in the heavens, the signs in the heavens immediately before the return of of the Son of Man to establish his kingdom upon the earth. It's also used in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, Olivet Discourse, just before the Lord returns to touch down on the planet and to deliver Israel from their enemies and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So all of this terminology is yet future. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. This is the biblical view of the so-called blood moons. The moon is turned dark like red. This is not John Hagee's uh, total misinterpretation of Scripture. This is not a sign that occurs now. It is what occurs immediately before the second coming. John, I have a special I did on that four moon uh, monstrosity because it was so popular and so many people read it and people say oh we must be close to jesus look at these signs well the signs that the bible talks about are signs that occur once you're in the tribulation period once you're inside of daniel's 70th week and we if we're believers in the lord jesus christ today members of christ's church we won't go through the go through that we will have been raptured out so it doesn't apply to us. So this is just a total abomination because you have too many pastors who are either confused or uneducated about theology and the text, and they're just leading a lot of sheep astray. So we have to be careful of that. But this, in, this description here tells us that whatever is going on in Isaiah 13 is something that is located at one time in the future, just before the Lord comes back the second time to the earth to establish his kingdom. goes on to say that God, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. See, this is end times. This is, this is what happens when Jesus returns and the judgments that take place there. Uh, all of the rest of it, I want to skip down because it, <clears throat> I don't want to get into all the details here. But in verse 19, we read, And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so the judgment on Babylon is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. The first thing it says is this is a glorious kingdom. When does Babel come into uh, focus and come into existence according to the Bible? That's in, described in Genesis chapter 11, the first 10 verses, with the building of the Tower of Babel, which is man asserting his independence from God, his rebellion against God. Man has been told that he is to scatter and fill the earth, but there were among those many who localized in the plain of Shinar, and they built a ziggurat or a high tower 
to against God, where they would unite against God. And many people speculate, I think there may be something to it, that they were trying to build their own mountain so that if God sent a flood again, they would be able to survive because they would uh, live above the floodwaters in their man-made mountain. And so this was led by Nimrod, who was the king of Shinar at the time. And this is the beginning of the kingdom of man in the post-flood era. And so you always have this contrast in the scriptures historically between Babylon and Jerusalem. And that in the end times, Jerusalem is the focal point And Babylon is also restored, literally, I believe. It's described in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the political dimensions and the economic dimensions of Babylon, and that this becomes the economic headquarters for the Antichrist during the end times, during uh, the period of Daniel's 70th week. And so in those eight stages of the Battle of Armageddon, as I've described, and you can find that in the several studies, but you can find it in the Revelation study, that what happens is the Antichrist first comes into the Middle East and he establishes his beachhead and his headquarters in the Valley of Megiddo. Har Megiddo is the Hebrew, the mountain of Megiddo, comes into English as Armageddon. That's his staging area. And then just not long after he comes there, then there's this battle that occurs directly east of there in Babylon, and Babylon is finally destroyed. And that's what's described here. It's like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anyone know where Sodom and Gomorrah were located? Most people think it was this ruined area they've discovered archaeologically on the east side of the Dead Sea, about halfway down, called Bob Ed Dra. And I have always inclined to think that's where it was because of what they've discovered. Everything was wiped out. It was clear that there was a firestorm that came and burned the houses from the top down. But there's a new site that's being suggested by some that's uh, located on the north end of the Dead Sea. Now, what's interesting is you've got some really good men on both sides of this debate, and I haven't read enough on it to form form an opinion. We all have our go-to guys that we think really know what's going on. Randy Price believes that Bobet draws the location, always takes his tour groups there. They have to trek through the uh, uh, (coughs) brimstone and the dirt and everything to get there. But on the other hand, Wayne House has been to the new dig, and he thinks that they have a strong case there. Now, who knows? They'll, I haven't read the data, so there's there's probably some, some good information there. But, but by the way, both Wayne and Randy have just published a new book called by Zondervan called A Biblical Handbook for, uh, or handbook for Biblical Archaeology. It's $40. You can get it off of Randy's website, which is worldofthebible.probably.org. So you can just look for World of the Bible Ministries, and you can find his website. I picked up a copy at the conference and spent a little time today reading through it, and it's organized uh, by... Uh, in the order of the books of the Bible. So you can follow along in any book and see where there are archaeological discoveries related to different areas of Scripture. There's only one place mentioned in Zechariah, by the way, Dan. I looked that up for you. It's in the second chapter. It's that eight, eight, whatever, uh, the lamp that has uh, eight, eight, what? Eight things, you know, eight wicks. So uh, that was all that was in Zechariah. Anyway, so Sodom and Gomorrah was wiped out. The fire and brimstone came down and just leveled it. Everybody was killed, and it never was restored. So the comparison is that if Babylon is destroyed, then it is never again rebuilt. But we know from Revelation it's going to be rebuilt. We know that under Saddam Hussein they rebuilt uh, Babylon. They had festivals there every year. And, in fact, uh, Charles Dyer, who at the time was at Moody, I'm not sure where he is now, he's a classmate of mine from Dallas, wrote a book that's quite good called The Rise of Babylon. And um, Andy Woods wrote, a, wrote his uh, uh, 
something about Babylon. I think it was either his master's thesis or something, but he argued the same position, that this is a literal Babylon. This isn't some spiritualized Babylon. It's not a code word for the Roman Catholic Church or for Rome or something else. Babylon in the Bible always means literal, physical, geographical Babylon. So this is talking about the fact that it will never be inhabited again. Well, it's being inhabited again. And it says, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there, wild goats will caper there, etc. That hasn't actually happened. In fact, Dyer identifies at least three different settlements, that Arab settlements, that have been within the precincts of ancient Babylon that have survived down through the centuries. And so this hasn't been fulfilled yet. And there will be a future restoration of Babylon in the end times. So I think that's the focal point of these two chapters is something that happens at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. And that's the time when Israel will be restored to the land. That's how chapter 14 begins. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. God has a plan for the future of Israel. They will not be destroyed by Iranian nuclear missiles. If you're a believer in prophecy in the Lord Jesus Christ, while we need to make sure that we can shut down the Iranian nuclear operation, they will not destroy Israel and make it a nuclear wasteland because then prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled. So we know God is not going to allow that to happen. Uh, he will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. There are two restorations of Israel, according to Isaiah 11.11. One restoration in unbelief and one restoration in belief. The restoration in unbelief has been taking place since the first Aliyah that occurred in the early 1890s, and we've had uh, the restoration of many Jews in unbelief to Israel. They have to be there. First of all, so there's a nation to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist that starts Daniel's 70th week. Secondly, there has to be a nation there to be the focal point of the tribulation period, which is going to be a, a hostile, worldwide hostility against Israel and the rise of a virulent form of anti-Semitism, much worse than anything Hitler dreamed about. But God will bring them at the end of the tribulation in belief. All of the elect, that's described also in Matthew 24, 31, that the angels will gather the elect, the context is the elect of Israel, and bring them back uh, to the land. That's what this is talking about here in verse 1. Settle them in their own land. The strangers will be uh, joined with them. And they will cling to the house of Jacob. Strangers would be Goyim, Gentiles. Then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. So this is talking about the restoration of Israel and the establishment of that messianic kingdom. Now, we understand the time frame. The time frame is right there at the end of the tribulation, During that period of 75 days between the 1,260th day when Jesus returns and the 1,300, I think it's 1,330th day, which is when the kingdom is fully established that's described in, in Daniel chapter 12. So in that time period, it will come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear. Who's the you're here? It's Israel. When the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve during the times of the Gentiles, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Okay? So this is talking about the king of Babylon in the future during the tribulation period. And so then we have this this proverb against him that is described in the second half of... uh, 4b down through um, down through 11 
And so it talks about the fact you're how the oppressors has ceased, the golden city ceased, that's the destruction of Babylon. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. That means he's destroyed their dominion. He's destroyed the, their rulership. He has destroyed the house of Babylon completely. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, he will rule with a rod of iron, according to Psalm uh, 2 7. Then it says, he, I believe that's um, talking about the Lord, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, no one hinders the whole earth. Maybe that, no, that's a, re- a reference to. Um, to the Antichrist, I mean to the king of Babylon, he ruled the nations in anger. And so he is judged. He ruled the nations in anger, he's persecuted, no one hinders. The whole earth now is at rest and quiet. That only happens in the millennium. They break forth into singing. This is the rejoicing that occurs after the Lord returns during that 75-day interval between the 1,260th day and the 1,335 days. That's what it is. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, that is you being the king of Babylon, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. In other words, nobody's fighting Israel again. Sheol from beneath is excited about you. This is talking about the king of Babylon. Now, the future ruler over Babylon ultimately is the Antichrist. He rules the kingdoms of the earth and under him is Babylon, so he is also the ruler of Babylon. And uh, he is destroyed. Where is he going to go? He's going to go straight to Sheol. We'll see that in a minute in Revelation. Sheol from beneath is excited about you. In other words, hell is opening its arms to welcome you to hell, to the lake of, not to the lake of fire, but to Sheol. That should be Sheol there, not hell. To meet you at your coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. These were all the kings of the earth who gave their allegiance to the king of Babylon, the Antichrist. And so everything here is talking about him. Verse 11, your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. That's talking about he dies physically at the end of the tribulation. He goes into the grave and then he'll be resurrected and judged and sent to Sheol. Now, then a taunt is taken up against not the king, the human king, but the one who empowered him and indwelt him. And that is Satan. Because what is said about the person in 12 through 14 can't be said about a human being. It is said about the one who empowered him. So that when Satan indwells the Antichrist, they are viewed as the same. Okay? So that's why I say this is directed at that end-time ruler, but at the power behind that end-time ruler. So it relates to the Antichrist, but specifically to the power behind him, which is Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, Halal Ben-Shahar. Ben-Shahar is son of the morning. Halal referred to the bright star. Uh, the, Hebrew, uh, the Latin word for uh, bright light is lux. And so it was taken, translated into Vulgate, related to Lucifer, and that's where that name came from. So that term Lucifer really isn't Satan's name. His name is Halal bin Shahar. So if you can remember that. I still use Lucifer because that's what people relate to, but that's what it means in the, in the Hebrew. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. It was Satan who destroys the nations in human history. And why? Because of his arrogance. And that's what is outlined in these verses. Uh, and so we come to understand exactly uh, what, they, what these phrases mean. He says, I will ascend into heaven. And so this is his idea that he will ascend to the command post of the universe. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The phrase stars of God may refer literally to the stars of the universe, God's creation, but it was also a term that metaphorically referred to all of the angelic host 
as described in Job 38, verse 7, and in Jude 13, and in Revelation 12, 3 through 4. So this is probably a metaphorical use related to the angelic host. Then he says, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the assembly of the north, or here in the New King James, on the farthest sides of the north. Now, this describes the assembly of the angels before the thrones of God. Pagan religions in the Middle East especially in the area of what we now call Syria, had a mythology that located the uh, the gods and the assembly of the gods. And remember, Deuteronomy talks about the, the gods in the false religions are really demons. And it, in mythology, located their headquarters in a mountain and was often pictured in the north and in the far north of Syria, according to Syrian mythology. And so that's the imagery here is that he is saying that he will sit on the mount of the assembly of these gods and goddesses, which are in fact demons. In other words, he's going to rule over all of his uh, fallen angels. And then in verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Again, clouds are often associated with the presence of God and his intervention into human history. And so he is claiming that he will have sovereignty over everything. And then the last line, I will make myself like the Most High. This is the ultimate expression of his arrogance, that he will surpass God in all of his power and in all of his might. One of God's titles is El Elyon, which stresses God's omnipotence and sovereignty and authority over his creation. So this is an expression of his arrogance. Now, what we see if we go to the, to put, fit this together, if we go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 talks about what is happening in the heavens. Remember, if you, if you do, when we go through Revelation, there's a scene that is on the earth, and then the next chapter, the scene shifts to what's going on in heaven. And then there's a scene shift to the earth. Well, in chapter 12, it gives us a scene shift to what's happening behind the scenes in heaven. And John writes, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now, this is a picture of the Antichrist kingdom because he, there were ten nations, and according to Daniel 7, he rips out three of them to gain control of them to force them into this ten-nation uh, confederacy. And that's why it says on its heads were these seven diadems. Not, not fully ten because of the way he ha manhandled three of them. And then in verse 7 we read, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. Now who are his angels? These are the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion against God. We refer to them as fallen angels. Sometimes we refer to them as demons. So that's this war that has been going on throughout human history and beyond human history between Satan and his angels and God and his angels. And human history is a reflection and extension of that war that's happening in the invisible realm, which is why Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote his book on spiritual warfare and called it The Invisible War because it's, there's a lot going on that we don't see. Then in verse 8, we read, And they were not strong enough. That is, the demons, the angels of Satan, were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now, this hasn't happened yet. They're still fighting. This fall that is introduced here in verse 8, that the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I think that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. So this is when literally all hell breaks loose on the earth in the last half of the tribulation during that time of the bold judgments. Uh, this is further described in Isaiah 14:19, where it says, But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, 
like the garment of those who are slain. See, Satan, I mean, the Antichrist is killed, his body's put in a grave, and then he's brought out of that grave, and he's judged, and he's sent to Sheol. That's the order of events that takes place there. Um, then we read this described in Revelation 19.20, after the Lord returns, then the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship him. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now you put this together, you see that in Isaiah 14 he's described as dead. Well, God, uh, Christ resurrects him there, brings him out, and then he and the beast are sent to the lake of fire. Now they're not sent in their mortal body, they're sent in an immortal body so that it can burn forever and ever in the lake of fire. And then we're told the rest of those uh, that followed him were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth, the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the carrion birds who are going to feed off of the uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of corpses that are uh, left as a result of the campaign of Armageddon. Then John said in Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, that is the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. And then he'll be released for a time and lead a rebellion against God. So that takes us through these two key passages, uh, Ezekiel 28, uh, Isaiah 14. Remember, You can always remember this, Isaiah 14, and you double 14 and you have 28. That way you can remember those two chapters that describe the fall uh, of Satan. So next time we'll come back and we'll start with the question, when did this take place? And then we'll move from there into understanding the great satanic attacks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through your word and come to understand your clear and explicit revelation of how uh, sin and evil began in the universe and how this impacts and affects hum the course of human history and how you will ultimately judge it, and bring it to its conclusion. And we pray that you would help us to understand these things because we as Christians play a vital role in this entire process where we stand as witnesses of your grace and of your love, and ultimately we will be with you when you return to judge the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. Father, we pray you will challenge us with this. Keep us safe tonight. And as we drive on the uh, wet streets, and Father, we uh, ask your guidance and direction in our spiritual walk. In Christ's name, amen.